Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. Thank you for tuning in to Tony Katz today. My name is Cam Edwards sitting in for Mr. Katz. We have a great program for you over the next three hours. Going to be spending some time with my friend Ed Morrissey from HotAir.com, kicking around some of the uh, big stories of the day, including the uh, civil war on the Democrat side between, uh, oh, you've got about uh, 12 or so Democrats that uh, wrote a letter to Representative Elon Omar asking her to uh, clarify her uh, comments comparing the United States and uh, Israel to uh, Hamas and the Taliban. Uh, Elon Omar firing back now, accusing her Democratic colleagues of Islamophobia. We'll uh, talk with Ed Morrissey about that coming up a little bit later on in the hour. Also, uh, in hour two, Jeff Dunnitz is going to join us from the Yid with Lid, or the, yes, Yid with Lid blog, or uh, Yid blog, uh, talking about Israel's new government. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, you know, ousted by this coalition of basically everybody from the far left to the far right uh, in Israel uh, getting together and uh, removing Netanyahu as uh, head of uh, Israel's government. First time in uh, well over a decade that Israel is going to have a new leader. So what does that mean in terms of uh, both our relationship with Israel as well as uh, Israel's relationship with its neighbors, including the uh, hostilities uh, uh, by Iran? Are we going to see Israel take a softer line uh, towards their adversary with a, a new prime minister in place? Uh, and my friend Steve Gatassi is going to join us in hour three as well. He is the founder of The Reload uh, and one of my uh, other favorite Second Amendment resources beyond myself. I'm the editor at BarryAndArms.com. Uh, we're going to be talking guns in hour three. The uh, public comment period has just kicked off today for a new proposed rule from the Department of Justice and the ATF that could turn as many as 40 million legally owned firearms and millions of legal gun owners into prohibited items and uh, federal felons if this rule comes into play. And this is, by the way, is not legislation. Congress is not voting on this. This is a, a, an administrative rule that the Department of Justice is proposing. But in this rule, they want to redefine what a rifle is under federal law. And they want to include, under their new definition of what a rifle is, millions of lawfully owned AR-style pistols. And the ATF says, well, if you put a stabilizing brace on the back of one of these AR-style pistols, you're probably, we can't guarantee, of course, but you're probably going to turn that pistol into what we would consider to be a short-barreled rifle, and you would have to either register that firearm under the National Firearms Act, you'd have to pay a $200 tax stamp to do so, or if you uh, maintain possession of that gun that you legally purchased, again, you could be looking at a 10-year federal prison sentence and a $100,000 fine uh, if the ATF were to ever catch you with that gun. We'll also talk in hour three about the uh, California assault weapons ban that was struck down by a, a federal judge last Friday. It's been almost a week now, but the left is still freaking out about this uh, because they know that if this decision stands, that one of the the main objectives of the gun control movement uh, is going to be dead and buried. You know, the gun control movement started out in this country it really in earnest in the 1960s. 
Uh, and there was an organization called Handgun Control Incorporated that uh, briefly changed its name to the Council to Ban Handguns. Then it became the Brady Center to Prevent Gun Violence. Now it's just known as Brady. And over the decades, of course, we've seen other anti-gun groups pop up like Moms Demand Action, Every Town for Gun Safety and the like. But the fundamental premise of the gun control movement going back to the 1960s was to ban handguns. That's what they wanted. And of course, that was taken off the table in 2008 when the Supreme Court declared in Heller versus D.C. that a ban on handguns like the one in place in our nation's capital from 1977 to 2008 violated the Second Amendment rights of American citizens. So a handgun ban is off the table. And now gun control uh, activists have said, well, well OK, well, we got to we got to ban something, right, because it's all about banning our way to safety. And so uh, their their new shiny object are those scary black rifles, the, the so-called assault weapons, modern sporting rifles, as the firearms industry calls them. And if gun control advocates were uh, precluded from uh, banning these firearms as well, it, it it really decimates their entire agenda. If they can't ban their way to safety, what is the point of, of trying? Why, why try to go after legal gun owners if you can't take their guns away? If the Supreme Court has said, no, that's not allowable under the Constitution. So it is um, not surprising that we have seen the reaction from the left that we have seen, but they are losing their minds uh, over this decision in California. So we'll talk about that coming up in hour three as well. We've got a lot of other uh, news to discuss, uh, including Joe Biden's trip overseas, uh, Jill Biden channeling her uh, inner Edith Wilson uh, as Joe Biden heads over uh, to England for this G7 summit. Uh, you may have seen the uh, the tweet from uh, Jill Biden as she's sitting there in her study. She's got her reading glasses on. She's looking over very important documents and, and the caption prepping for the G7. Well, she's the first lady. What, did, what, did, what does she have to do at the G7 summit? Well, I mean, what did, by the way, by the way, what would the reaction have been if you just swapped out Jill Biden's picture with Melania Trump? Same caption. Same same position in the administration, first lady. They left would have had a field. Oh, really? You're prepping for the G7, Melania? But no, Dr. Jill Biden, very serious person. And uh, I don't know what role she's going to be playing at the G7 uh, other than the normal role that a first lady plays. But uh, yeah, she's, she's certainly touting herself as a, a very important part of the administration, much again as Edith Wilson did. Although in Edith Wilson's case 100 years ago it was because her husband had a stroke and was incapacitated. And uh, Edith Wilson just sort of stepped up instead of the vice president and was the shadow president for a year and a half. Is that what's going on with Joe Biden <laughs> at uh, Dr. Jill or or as I saw one uh, headline proclaimer today, Jilly from Philadelphia, which got it maybe uh, choke back <clears throat> my gag reflex there yeah dr jill from philadelphia uh is, is she stepping up is she now the shadow president i don't think it's gotten to that point yet i i, I think that biden is still um at least nominally in charge his, his speech is still at least 60 percent better than uh woodrow wilson's after his stroke so I, I i'm not sure what exactly is going on here with dr jill biden but uh, we'll talk about that a little bit later on in the program as well plus you may have seen this story uh reported earlier today from axios half 
of the unemployment benefits paid out by the United States, by Congress, half of these unemployment benefits that have been paid out over the past year and a half or so since the uh, COVID pandemic shutdowns began, may have gone to criminal organizations. Axios reports that unemployment fraud during the pandemic could easily reach 400 billion with a B, $400 billion. And they say the bulk of that money likely ended up in the hands of foreign crime syndicates, making this not just a matter of theft, but a matter of national security. I recall those headlines a couple of months ago uh, out of California, where it looked like half of the state's unemployment, uh, COVID unemployment benefits were paid out to individuals behind bars. People who were in California prisons ended up getting these unemployment checks. And I thought that was bad enough. But this is much, much worse. Again, almost half a trillion dollars that we apparently paid out to criminal organizations uh, under the, uh, the, the guise of providing relief to those Americans who had lost their job. And even when confronted with this new information, Marty Walsh, who's the labor secretary, was asked about this. And he, he was asked, you know, do you think maybe we should stop these uh, added benefits? I know they're going to run out in September. Do you think maybe we should stop them now, given the amount of fraud that has taken place here? And Marty Walsh's response was, no, let's keep it going. Even if this money gets funneled to, you know, crime syndicates in Russia or China and doesn't go into the pockets of those Americans who have lost their job, keep the spigot of cash open and flowing. That's the uh, administration's position. All right, we're going to step away for a moment or two, but when we come back, Mr. Ed Morrissey's going to be with us from Hot Air. Stick around. We are just getting started on this Thursday edition of Tony Katz Today. Welcome back. Here to Tony Katz today. My name is Cam Edwards. I'm the editor at BearingArms.com, and I am so glad that you are a part of Tony Katz today. Also, I really appreciate Tony extending the invitation for me to sit behind the microphone. I'll be with you today and tomorrow. And, uh, you know, it's funny. I mean, generally speaking, the summer months are supposed to be kind of the, the, the slow news season, but we've got a lot of stuff going on around the country and around the world to uh, get into. Hot Air's Ed Morrissey is going to be with us here in uh, just a couple of moments, kicking around some of these big stories. In fact, uh, Ed's latest piece at Hot Air is all about the story we were just talking about before the break, uh, this report from Axios, that as much as $400 billion in unemployment fraud uh, may have gone to uh, uh, criminal organizations, uh, not only in the United States, but in places like China and Russia as well. And uh, Ed Morrissey is with us to talk about this and more. Ed, how are you, sir? Good morning, sir. So I got to say, this, this story, we are just talking about it before the break. I mean, this is unbelievable. $400 billion in fraud from these, uh, uh, you know, COVID uh, uh, stimulus benefits and the uh, increased uh, unemployment. And yet Marty Walsh, the labor secretary of the Biden administration, uh, was asked about this yesterday. Do you think we should stop maybe, uh, you know, giving folks extra money? He said, no way. Despite the fact that, you know, according to this report, Ed, criminal syndicates in countries like China and Russia may have been one of the primary beneficiaries of this unemployment cash. Well, you know, here's the thing. I, I'm not sure how solid this uh, study is or, or this data is. I mean, I, I looked at this report. It's certainly an interesting report. And we kind of knew going in that we were more or less inviting disaster, right? 
I mean, mm-hmm. we, we kind of knew that there was going to be, you know, waste, fraud, abuse, the, the, the big three, as we like to say, right? Um, what we didn't really know um, was uh, what the scope of it would be. And I think it was, you know, in, in places like the Paycheck Protection Program, we've seen some, some indications that the scope was actually, you know, rather significant. Uh, what we don't have here is hard data, so it's hard to know just how much of this is uh, potential and how much of this is actual. It's certainly possible that you have this much fraud. I just don't know, uh, without seeing the, the actual data, I'm not sure how much we can, how much stock we can put into the numbers that are in this Axios report. Well, and as you say, you know, the, the experts that are cited here, uh, Blake Hall, the CEO of ID.me, and uh, Haywood Talco, the CEO of LexisNexis Risk Solutions, um, do have a vested interest, as you say, in, in playing up uh, the risks here. Uh, on the other hand, you know, they also uh, don't want to sacrifice their own credibility by by tossing out crazy numbers, right, without any uh, a factual basis. So Blake Hall says as much as 50% of all unemployment monies might have been stolen. Uh, Haywood Talco estimates that at least 70% of the money stolen by imposters ultimately left the country. Uh, much of it ended up in the hands of criminal syndicates in China, Russia, Nigeria. Although I think in that case it wasn't criminal syndicates; it was Nigerian princes, Ed, uh, who received that money. But uh, you well, we know, like to support our Nigerian royalty. You know, I, exactly. You know, I, I have several princes that I have supported over the years, and <laughs> I think it's a tradition that needs to continue, Cam. You know, but the, we, so we've already had this argument that look, uh, keeping these extra unemployment benefits in place is is really distorting. Uh, the job market and is keeping people on the sidelines when you've got companies that are desperate for workers. This is now, I guess, a, an additional argument as to why these uh, added benefits need to go away sooner rather than later, right? It's not that this negates the other argument, but it simply adds to it. Uh, yes, and I think that that's the, that's going to be part of the problem here is that it's already perceived that this is a that this program has um, outlived its usefulness probably by several months, and it's holding back. It's not just holding back the um, uh, the reopening of America. It's also contributing to supply chain shortages, which contributes to inflation, and um, and that this money could really be better directed elsewhere, um, including you know. Infrastructure bill or two, possibly, where you could spend some of this money. Um, yeah, so I, I think you're right that this report doesn't help Democrats argue that these programs should be continued all the way through to their September expiration. I think you're already seeing, by the way, um, the White House backing away from that anyway. I mean, originally he was, Joe Biden was saying, no, 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 we need to keep these things going. Now he's saying, well, it's not a bad thing that they're expiring. Then when Republican governors were starting to cut this off, he said, well, you know, that's not a bad choice necessarily. And they're not very committed to these uh, pandemic UI programs. And I think that Mm -hmm. you're going to start seeing uh, moves in Congress to to, uh, expire them out sooner. Uh, you know, I guess the, the, the problem there is that Congress moves at such a glacial pace. These things are already set to expire in September. Uh, what are the odds that Congress can get anything done before these extra benefits expire on their own? Well, I think what uh, you might see is if there's a deal on something like an infrastructure package mm-hmm. um, or, or one of the other big agenda items that are uh, that's going through um, Congress right now or really going through the Senate because that's where all this stuff is stuck, um, you might end up seeing, especially on the, on the uh, infrastructure package, if they can get to a deal on infrastructure, part of that might be funded by a rescission of these benefits. And so you, you might see this as sort of a, a very low-profile amendment 
um, to an infrastructure bill, so nobody has to pay too much uh, attention to it on the uh, on the front side. Okay, so, you know, that's interesting because um, when it comes to those infrastructure talks, I mean, this was one of the ideas that Republicans had floated, right? All right, so we're looking at ways to pay for this without increasing taxes. Why don't we use some of this money that has already been uh, uh, created? I'm not even going to say appropriated. All of the money that's already been created for uh, COVID relief, and let's move it over to infrastructure. But Biden so far has not been willing to go that route. No. He hasn't been. In fact, that's the sticking point on which those talks collapsed uh, earlier this week. He then tried to uh, uh, tried to get other Senate Republicans to start negotiating with him, and Mitt Romney put a screeching halt to that, saying, we're not going to raise taxes either. Uh, Shelley Moore Capito uh, was not the only person who didn't want to raise taxes. None of us want to raise taxes. And that's put the whole enterprise you know, into doubt now. But I think that this, I think that this plus the uh, plus just the obvious implications of uh, having this large overhang of workers draw unemployment unemployment benefits. I mean, we're talking about over 11 million continuing claims in these pandemic uh, UI benefit programs. Uh, when you're looking at inflation, it's at five percent. Uh, year on year, and you're looking at supply chain shortages, which is going to keep driving this up. I, I don't think it's tenable for them to to insist that those uh, that those relief programs stay fully funded. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm with you. Um, listen, I don't know if you can stay with us for another segment. Can we keep you around sure. for another 15 minutes or so? Absolutely. Fantastic, because I want to talk to you about something else that's going on in Congress here, the uh, the civil war on the Democratic side of the aisle uh, between a number of uh, congressional Democrats uh, who, who fired off a, a verbal shot at Elon Omar uh, last night, a, a letter asking for clarification on uh, her comments comparing the United States and Israel to Hamas and the Taliban. And uh, Elon Omar uh, taking the bait. She has responded as well now, accusing her colleagues of Islamophobia, among other things. We have more with high airs ed morrissey coming up after this quick break so stick around uh when we return here on tony cats today we're going to continue the conversation we'd love to hear from you as well the phone number is 833 got tony and we're going to be talking more about what's going on in washington to see what's going on uh, in your neighborhood as well so stick around there's much more of tony cats today coming up right after this back to Tony Katz today. My name is Cam Edwards. It is not Tony Katz today on Tony Katz today. Uh, I am the editor at BarryAndArms.com sitting in for Mr. Katz. Phone number to call is 833-GOT-TONY. We are spending some time with my friend and colleague Ed Morrissey from HotAir.com talking about uh, some of the doings uh, in Washington, D.C., including uh, this story, Ed, which I, I find absolutely fascinating. Obviously, you know, we've got some fractures on the right as well, but uh, the, the deep divides uh, on the left 
Uh, I, I think are um, growing ever deeper here. And uh, in, in this particular case, you've got a number of Democrats who uh, called out Elon Omar for her comments uh, comparing the United States and Israel to Hamas and the Taliban. Uh, Representative Brad Schneider tweeting this out last night, uh, including several of his fellow Democrats, urging Representative Omar to clarify her words uh, Elon Omar's response is, quote, it's shameful for colleagues who call me when they need my support to now put out a statement asking for clarification and not just call. The Islamophobic tropes in this statement, she says, are offensive. The constant harassment and silencing from the signers of this letter, again, her fellow Democrats, is unbearable. Ed Morris, he passed the popcorn. Uh, indeed, pass the popcorn. And it, it gets even better because after this, uh, Ilan Omar's spokesperson, uh, Jeremy Slevin, put out a statement that said that these House Democrats are, quote, ginning up the same Islamophobic hate, end quote, as, you know, uh, right-wing Republicans have been against Ilan Omar. Um, that is... Uh, this is beyond fighting words. This is a meltdown. And um, what I'm surprised is that we haven't seen Nancy Pelosi step in to, you know, separate the combatants at this point in time. This is it's a disaster. And this is all part of the refusal to deal with this issue when it first came up two years ago with Ilan Omar, when she said that support for Israel uh, was all about the Benjamins and, and hinted that uh, uh, American legislature... Uh, American legislators were under the control of uh, Israel via the Jews. And, I mean, this is, she's a nutcase anyway. This is just more of the same nuttiness. And they had an opportunity to to, to censure her, and they didn't, they didn't take it. Now I think that Nancy Pelosi might be a little worried about um, having to come back and do this again when she's facing a very tough midterm cycle next year. Yeah, well, I think that you're right about that. I think one of the concerns for Nancy Pelosi is that, um, I mean, as much as you know, it, it, we we could call Elon Omar's statements nutty, and I think that they are, but they also represent a, you know, fairly substantial chunk of the Democrat base, and and I, I I suspect that's one of the reasons why Nancy Pelosi is reluctant to weigh in because there's no way for her to take action without ticking off uh, a, a good part of her party. I actually think that there might be some benefit to doing this at this point in time. First off, it's early in the cycle. This is a good time to get this out of the way before the midterm cycle really heats up. But also, I think it's important that to, to realize that her um, extremely thin majority in the House is based on seats that were won in swing districts. Um, these were suburban districts that are not going to be uh, happy about Ilan Omar's rhetoric, especially accusations that uh, that Jewish um, House Democrats are spreading Islamophobia. I mean, this is not going to fly in those districts. And if she comes out and really uh, spanks Omar hard over this, it is at least uh, arguably a demonstration that she wants to uh, keep this keep this party in the center. I don't know that there's a big huge risk um, with Ilan Omar's allies within the base. It's a small slice. And both parties have a real problem. Have, have a, um, let me put it this way. Both parties have a very narrow but still real problem with anti-Semites in its base. Um, it's just that the Democrats have gotten a lot more vocal about it.
Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Um, you know, and, and I would say, too, that uh, I don't believe that uh, everybody who supports the, uh, the Palestinians uh, is, is anti-Semitic. Um, however, I think that uh, uh, those anti-Semitic individuals, uh, you know, in either party, um, they're, they're not going to be, you know, coming out uh, in support of Israel. And is this a fight that, that Nancy Pelosi, I mean, obviously it's a fight that Nancy Pelosi doesn't want to have at this moment. But I'm curious, Ed, I mean, how, 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 how big a problem does this become? Because if, let's say Nancy Pelosi comes out and, and you know, uh, smacks down or even, you know, tries to censure uh, Elon Omar uh, for her comments. Look, you've got the squad out there who are all in, you know, these safely blue districts. In fact, uh, you've got, I think, another piece at Hot Air. Oh, I'm sorry, this is your colleague, Alapundant, uh, talking about AOC going after uh, a, a swing state Democrat senator saying, listen, it's time for you all to go on the record. Where do you stand on nuking the filibuster? You know, you, you've got this, the, the, the far left wing of the Democrat Party, uh, who is not just interested in waging ideological war against the right, but they're trying to wage ideological warfare against their own colleagues as well. Yes. And, and I think that when you take a look at some of the reaction, it's going to be a big problem. You've got now you've got Rashida Tlaib and Cori Bush, two members of the of the, of the expanded squad, um, who are attacking these 12 Democrats for criticizing Elon Omar and accusing it. Cori Bush is accusing them of racism. Um, and uh, this is, uh, you know, she says enough with the anti-blackness and Islamophobia. I, that's 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 explicit. She's explicitly accusing them of racism um, for criticizing Ilan Omar when Ilan Omar equated the U.S. Uh, and Israel to Taliban and, and Hamas. I mean, that's 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 uh, that's over the top. And uh, it's going to take House leadership. It's going to take House Democratic leadership to to put an end to this. And so far, they're just AWOL. And I, I, that, to me, is the most uh, they should have been on top of this immediately. Immediately, and and called everybody into a into a uh, at least a Zoom call, and told them to keep their mouths shut. This is <laughs> this is really bad leadership at, at the moment. It is bad leadership, but uh, I, you know, again, I mean, you look at I I, I just think that um, I think they're afraid to do that. Uh, you know, you look at where yeah. the the energy is right now on the left, and it is, you know, it's certainly coming from the squad, but you look at MSNBC, you look at uh, a lot of the programming coming from uh, even CNN, um, and, you know, the, the, the Omar position or the squad position, I think, is the sort of standard position now uh, within the left media, not necessarily within, you know, Democrat House leadership or Democrat Senate leadership, uh, but among that sort of activist base it's the squad who are the heroes and I, I'm, I'm right there with you in terms of the damage that that does to swing district Democrats. I live in Virginia, and I remember Abigail Spanberger getting on a conference call after the November elections and, you know, telling her colleagues, I never want to hear the word socialism again. It, it hurts in, in my district to hear to AOC talk about socialism. But I don't know. I don't know how you can uh, bandaid this this fracture, uh, you know, between the the various wings of the Democrat Party. And I don't know how you can heal that divide between now and next November. 
clearly it's 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 not getting any better, right? I mean, this has been going on. This has been going on literally since Ilan Omar got to Congress. This, this mm-hmm. started, I think, a month or two after she took uh, took her seat, maybe even within a month of her taking her seat. This has been going on for over two years with her, and the reason why it continues to go on is because Nancy Pelosi punted on this. They had an opportunity to put an end to this and to and to teach her a lesson, and instead they ended up passing some sort of resolution that just said, "Well, we hate bigotry." I mean, you might as well have just said we love ducks. I mean, it really, you know, we, we, we love, we love, you know, cute little uh, chickies, I, I, you know, uh, and, and, and ducklings and, and all birds. Um, I mean, it's, it was an absurd response to an offensive statement. And these are the same people who are freaking out over uh, microaggressions and dog whistles when it comes from Republicans. This, when you say enough the anti-blackness and Islamophobia to, uh, to members, to Jewish members of your own caucus, that is not a dog whistle. That is not a microaggression. That is a flat-out offensive statement. Uh, and yet, I think we're going to get a lot more of it. Uh, listen, Mr. Morris, we've got to take a time out, unfortunately, but I do appreciate you joining us on the program. Uh, I would encourage everybody to go to hotair.com. Ed has written some great pieces today. He's got more on the way. And uh, Ed and I, we usually get together on Wednesdays for our uh, VIP Gold live chat for Town Hall Media members. So, Ed, it's nice to get some bonus time with you this week. Absolutely. I've been looking forward to it, Cam, and uh, have a great show. Thank you, sir. Ed Morrissey with us here on Tony Katz today. We're going to take a, a quick time out. When we come back, though, we're going to talk a little bit deeper about uh, AOC going after these swing state Democrats. I mean, this really is a gift uh, for the GOP if they can take advantage of it. Stick around. We've got more Tony Katz today coming up right after this. Welcome back. Tony Cast today. Uh, my name is Cam Edwards, editor at BarryAndArms.com. Coming up on the program next hour, we're going to talk with Jeff Dunitz about the uh, new government in Israel. We might also get uh, Jeff's take on uh, Elon Omar versus her fellow Democrats over uh, comparing the United States and Israel to Hamas and the Taliban. Uh, and now Elon Omar accusing uh, many of her fellow Democrats of fostering Islamophobia and uh, adding to a culture of hate uh, around uh, Omar herself. Uh, but, you know, another member of the squad, probably the more famous member of the squad, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, also taking some jabs at her fellow Democrats. She's talking to the Daily Beast on Wednesday, and she's talking about the filibuster in the Senate, which, of course, is the, the big hang-up uh, between uh, folks like AOC advancing their revolutionary, and I don't use that word lightly, revolutionary uh, agenda to remake this country. Uh, and she doesn't want to see this in place. I mean, none of them do, right? So most of the attention has been uh, given to Joe Manchin and his reticence uh, and insistence that he is not going to nuke the filibuster. But uh, there are reports that there are a number of other Democrats who feel the same way, but they're letting Manchin take the heat uh, because this is good for Manchin's uh, political prospects. I mean, don't forget, Joe Manchin represents the state of West Virginia, where every single county went red for uh, Donald Trump in November's elections. Uh, Joe Biden did not carry a single county in West Virginia. So for Manchin to stand up against his fellow Democrats and say, no, nope, no, nope, we're going to keep the filibuster in place. That's good politics for Joe Manchin. 
it, it's but it but it's driving uh, most of the left absolutely nutty. Uh, I say most because apparently there are some other senators out there with D's behind their names who are also, you know, in the same place that Joe Manchin is. They really don't want to see the filibuster go away, but they're not saying anything because it is not as good uh, for their political prospects to speak out. They are not in a, uh, a red state. They are maybe even in safe blue states. So uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said um, that if uh, Joe Manchin or Kirsten Cinema folded and, and agreed to nuke the filibuster, she thought that these other senators would come around to eliminating the filibuster as well. But she says, quote, that doesn't mean that they shouldn't be pressed for their position and offer clarity to their constituents, though. People deserve to know with clarity where their elected representation stands on the filibuster. Now, here's the thing. I happen to agree with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I, I would like to know where every senator stands on nuking the filibuster, too. But... Most of AOC's Democratic colleagues <laughs> are kind of telling her, shut up. At least that's what the response was when they heard this, because they don't want to go on the record. Why would they want to go on the record if they are a, a swing state Democrat uh, like Mark Kelly from Arizona, for example, or Maggie Hassan from New Hampshire, uh, both of whom who are up for reelection next year? Uh, Arizona, I don't think is a blue state. I, you might be able to call it a purple state, but uh, it would be troubling for uh, many voters in Arizona if Mark Kelly were to come out and say, uh, yeah, I think we should get rid of the filibuster, too. Instead, he's just simply remained quiet here. And he's it's OK for him to do that uh, among Democrats because you got Joe Manchin out there. So he doesn't need to weigh in because Manchin's the problem. Well, if Manchin isn't the only problem, <laughs> then uh, voters should know about that. And AOC is right that these senators should come clean, but they don't want to. Uh, she's also taken to Twitter uh, to call out some other senators as well. She uh, said, uh, quote, President Biden and Senate Democrats should take a step back and ask themselves if playing patty cake with GOP senators is really worth the dismantling of people's voting rights, setting the planet on fire, allowing massive corporations and the wealthy to not pay their fair share of taxes, etc. She said during the Obama administration, folks that would have a 60 Dem majority for a while, it lasted four months. Democrats are burning precious time and impact negotiating with the GOP. He won't even vote for a January 6th commission. McConnell's plan is to run out the clock. It's a hustle. We need to move now, she says. And that that is another talking point for the left. They know that they are likely to lose the House, if not the House and the Senate in the November elections. So they believe that they are in this unique window of opportunity right now to, to get stuff done. But the only way that they can do that, again, is to blow up the filibuster and start ramming through legislation with 51 votes. Now, Manchin's already said, I'm not going to do that. Which leaves the Democrats in this position where they're getting more angry and more frustrated and I believe more desperate by the day. Because if this window of opportunity closes and the Republicans do take back the House next year, well, then all of their legislative agenda items from, uh, you know, changing the, uh, the voting laws in this country to imposing Joe Biden's gun ban to bringing about the Green New Deal to pack in the Supreme Court, all of those plans just fall apart. 
now is the time that they could theoretically do it. And I say theoretically, because realistically, as long as Manchin and other Democrats are standing in the way, they can't get it done either. And uh, and so this, I think, is going to this, I think, has the potential even more than uh, Elon Omar's uh, uh, fight with her fellow Democrats over Israel. Uh, I, I think the filibuster is really the issue that could drive the Democrats uh, not just drive a wedge between the various wings of the Democrat Party, but could really drive the Democrat Party into a, a complete fracture between now and November. Uh, and I'm, I think it's going to be really interesting to see what happens in some of these primaries. Uh, and we'd actually just had uh, primaries in the state of Virginia uh, for the Democrats. And we saw some really interesting results. A number of incumbents were defeated. And uh, it was actually the, the more of the, the, the squad type members uh, of the Virginia legislature who lost their uh, re-election campaigns. We might get into that a little bit later on in the uh, program, but i tell you what, next hour we're going to talk with our friend Jeff Dunitz about what is going on in Israel. We've also got uh, news uh, here in the United States, including uh, the AO's ACLU going through a, uh, a bit of a crisis in uh, confidence. We'll talk about that coming up. Stick around. More Tony Cast today is coming up next. From the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. It is Tony Katz today. My name is Cam Edwards, sitting in for Tony uh, this afternoon. Glad to be behind the microphone. With the uh, phone number to call, by the way, is 833-GOT-TONY. We would love to hear from you. We're going to be uh, talking with my friend Jeff Dunnitz from uh, Lidblog later on in the hour. A lot of stuff to uh, talk about, including uh, what Israel's new government is going to look like and what, what, what it means, actually, for uh, our relationship with Israel, as well as uh, Israel's relations with uh, other neighboring nations, including their uh, biggest adversary, Iran. Uh, next hour, we're going to be joined by my friend Stephen Gatowski of TheReload.com, one of the uh, greatest Second Amendment reporters out there. We've got uh, a lot of gun-related items to talk about. I can't do three hours and not talk Second Amendment stuff for at least an hour. That's just, I mean, it's just my thing. So uh, we're going to talk about this California uh, decision by a federal judge striking down the state's ban on so-called assault weapons. We're also going to talk about this new proposed rule uh, the public comment period actually just kicked off today in uh, this rule proposed by the DOJ and the ATF would actually redefine what a rifle is uh, under federal law. Now, they're not going through Congress to do this. This is really an attempt at a backdoor gun ban uh, using the regulatory power of the executive branch to declare millions of of firearms to be prohibited items, millions of currently legally owned items, by the way, uh, would now be prohibited to own under federal law unless you paid a $200 tax stamp, unless you registered these uh, firearms with the federal government with the promise that you could keep them afterwards. I'm not sure that I believe that promise. In fact, I, I don't. Uh, but again, as many as 40 million firearms in this country and tens of millions of gun owners could be impacted by this attempt to ban these guns without a vote by Congress, because the Biden administration knows that they can't get a gun ban through Congress right now, uh, not only because of the filibuster, but because you could even get 60 votes in the Senate 
for a gun ban, even if the filibuster went away. Maybe you could get 51, but you're certainly not going to get 60. So right now, the Biden administration views the ATF uh, as its best opportunity to impose real restrictions on the right to keep and bear arms. All right, again, we're going to talk about that with uh, uh, Stephen Gutowski coming up next hour. Uh, but before we get to uh, a news about what's going on with uh, uh, the Israeli government, let's talk about a couple of things that are going on a little bit closer to home, including uh, on our border. You know, Customs and Border Patrol says that in May, uh, fewer unaccompanied minors and families crossed the U.S.-Mexico border. That, that's the good news. The bad news, however, is that more than 180,000 illegal immigrants were encountered at the southern border just last month. Now, Vice President Kamala Harris, you know, she's on her uh, her, her fact finding mission uh, as part of uh, her job duties to uh, to deal with the non crisis at the border. Right. So she's in Guatemala and the uh, Guatemalan president, you know, basically threw her under the bus rightfully pointed out that, look, we didn't have this problem until the administration started hinting to people or outright telling people, hey, if you come here, we'll let you in. And that led a lot of Guatemalans and Hondurans and El Salvadorians to decide that, okay, the, the door is now open. Uh, Guatemala's president actually blasting Kamala Harris for uh, the Biden administration for this decision. And Kamala Harris forced to, uh, you know, try to play defense here. Oh, no, 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 don't come. Don't come now, which has uh, some on the left accusing her of now being a border hawk. You've got other folks on the left uh, accusing her of not going far enough and, and uh, you know, saying to uh, uh, these folks south of the border, don't come here, but not actually doing anything to prevent this crisis from continuing to unfold uh, on our southern border. So breaking down these numbers, Customs and Border Protection says that uh, 14,158 unaccompanied minors were encountered at the border in May. That is down from 17,148 in April, but it is still the third highest on record. Uh, the all-time high set back in March of this year, 18,951 unaccompanied minors encountered at the border. So while the numbers are down, this is still a huge problem. And by the way, the policies of the Biden administration are not helping these families in Guatemala or Honduras or Mexico. The real benefit and the real beneficiaries of the Biden administration's policy are the cartels and the human smugglers who are taking these unaccompanied minors to the border. And families are paying thousands of dollars to these criminals in order to try to get their children into the United States. So the number's down slightly, but nothing worth celebrating in terms of those unaccompanied minors. Single adults, however, trying to cross the border at an all-time high right now. And the Biden administration continues to say we don't have a crisis, that there is... You know, nothing really going on that we haven't seen before. These things are just cyclical. Uh, and this is just a part of a normal cycle of a, uh, a rise of people trying to enter this country uh, illegally. Has nothing to do with their policies. 
has nothing to do with what Joe Biden has said or what Kamala Harris has said. It's just, you know, it's like spring thunderstorms, right? You've got tornado season in the Midwest. Well, you've got, you know, illegal immigration season on the southern border. And it is just one of those things. The problem with that is I don't think anybody believes it. I don't think Democrats believe it. Certainly doesn't sound like the president of Guatemala believes it. I don't even think Joe Biden and Kamala Harris believe that their policies have nothing to do with what is going on uh, at our southern border because they are, however reluctantly, um, trying to spin this. They know that this is a bad thing for the Biden administration. They know that Biden is underwater. When Americans are polled, how's Joe Biden doing? Overall, shockingly, in my opinion, Americans still uh, give Biden a, a passing grade, but not on border issues. That is the uh, one of the areas where Biden uh, does not enjoy uh, support from more than 50 percent of Americans. He is underwater because we can look and we can see what is going on, not only the southern border, but how this is impacting our communities all across the country. And the Biden administration is still not getting serious. The Mexican government has deployed thousands of soldiers and police to try to cut down on illegal immigration. We're not doing that in the United States. We're not, we're not flooding the border with National Guard. We're not adding to the budget of the CBP. We're, we're you know, in essence, pretending that this problem doesn't exist and allowing the crisis to not only continue, but to get much worse as well. All right, we're going to step away for a moment or two when we return here on Tony Cast today. Jeff Dunitz is going to join us. We're going to talk about what is going on in Israel and uh, what a new government might mean for uh, U.S.-Israeli relationships. Huh. I wonder what Elon Omar has to say about the uh, new government in Israel. Anyway, we'll uh, talk about this and more. We're taking your phone calls as well at 833-GOT-TONY, so stick around. Much more of Tony Cast today coming up right after this. Welcome back to Tony Katz today. My name is Cam Edwards sitting in for Mr. Katz this afternoon. Still to come, we've got Stephen Gatowski of The Reload talking all things 2A. But uh, coming up this Sunday, uh, Israel's parliament set to vote on a, a new coalition government, uh, which would mean a, a new prime minister. So what happens if uh, Bibi Netanyahu is no longer the prime minister and uh, Naftali Bennett a tech millionaire uh, takes over as uh, Israel's leader here to talk about it. Uh, the man behind lidblog.com, Mr. Jeff Dunitz is with us. Jeff, how are you, sir? Cam, how are you doing? I am excellent, man. I appreciate you coming on the program today. Oh, I, I appreciate you inviting me. It's going to yeah. be a weird couple of days in Israel. Uh, it, it sounds like it. I mean, if, first of all, this coalition uh, that ousted Netanyahu, I think is it, it, it's odd to American ears because you've got, you know, folks on the far left, on the far right, uh, folks in the middle. Uh, this is a, a, a type of coalition that you really don't see in American politics, party. even an Arab party. Exactly. So 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 if this coalition uh, does replace Netanyahu, what what type of changes do you think we could see in terms of uh, Israeli foreign policy? None. If any, none. Domestically, there are going to be changes. But um, keep in mind, I don't think that 
If they make it to Sunday, which it looks like they will, but I haven't heard the fat lady sing yet. If they make it there, it's not going to last more than six months because what you just said. They got people all over the you know all over the political spectrum. Their goal was to get Netanyahu out of out of prime minister office. Now that they've reached their goal, they have all their other goals, which are not the same. So they're going to fight and split up. Okay. Right, you, okay. The, the so, thing that's going to surprise Americans, I think, is that Naftali Bennett, who will be the new prime minister, is mm-hmm. to the right of Bibi Netanyahu. Okay. Oh, really? So the Democrats who have been screaming, I hate Bibi for two years or for how many years, <laughs> they're getting someone yeah. worse. Okay, so in other words, this is not going to get the uh, the stamp of approval from Elon Omar and the squad. Anything Jewish won't get the approval of Elon Omar and the squad. You have to understand something: the Democrats, at least the the left wing of the party, has been anti-Israel since the seventies. So this is nothing new. What we're going through now, it's just that. The, the far left has become the Democratic Party. Interestingly, an interesting story is, is that when Joe Biden first became a senator, he was in a foreign relations committee meeting where they discussed, they, they, they had a meeting with um, Menachem Begin, who was the prime minister at the time. Mm-hmm. And Biden started pointing his finger at Begin and banging on the table that if they don't get rid of the settlements, you're going to lose all your money. Da, 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 da. And Begin just looked at him and said, you don't do that to me. And he, he gave Begin was a lecturer. If you disagree with him, you got a 20 minute lecture. And he said, you know, my people have gone through 2000 years of this and I'm not going to let you do it. I mean, that that's a shortened version. And, right. Um, but while people feel that Biden's always been a friend of Israel, Biden's never been a friend of Israel. One of the reports he brought back from Israel when he was vice president is that the Israelis were adding rooms to the settlements they had. Mm-hmm. And, and Obama flipped out. But you know what the rooms they were adding were? They weren't taking no. more territories. They were adding more bathrooms to the community. That that was it, huh? That, it, that was 2010. And, um, yeah. So, <laughs> I don't it's... expect anything different foreign relation-wise. And I think that they can't do anything different because Bennett, who is the prime minister of the first two years of the agreement... Mm-hmm. Doesn't believe in a two-state solution, and um, Lapid, who is the second two years of the if it lasts that long, is very in favor of a two-state lo- solution. Well, and so that's I, I think that's a key that you just mentioned here. If this coalition lasts that long, I mean, again, given. Um, the, the the one commonality of this coalition appears to be that, that none of them like uh, Benjamin Netanyahu uh, and they want to see him replaced. Um, I, you know, what are the odds that this coalition can actually last for two years? 
It depends. What are the odds of me growing uh, growing a full head of hair when I sleep tonight? <laughs> Probably about the same as I my mean, odds of that, Jeff. Well, you know, all you have to do is flip the beard up. That's true. Good point. Okay. But the truth is, is that um, you're right. The other thing to keep in mind is, you know how people say American politics can be really dirty? Mm-hmm. It's child play compared to Israeli politics. It's like, you know, that old stereotype of Jewish people that you have two Jews, you have ten opinions? Yeah. Think about a whole nation of that. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. So I'm I'm curious, Jeff. I mean, if this coalition fractures and falls apart uh, before this two years is over, do we have any idea of of what could take its place? Or is that really an open-ended question at this point? I think if if it fractures, it will be then the fifth election in three years. Wow. Okay. And you have to understand something. Uh, Something I actually just learned last week was that there's there's only been one Israeli government where the Knesset voted to oust them. Every other Israeli government has been because one party has decided to pull out. There's never been there's only been one no confidence vote. Really? That kind of surprises really? me. But I mean, then again, Netanyahu has been uh, in power for so long. Um, now, here's the funny part. Yeah. That happened in 1990 with, um, with Shimon Perez. And it happened on the day the Knesset was supposed to vote him in as prime minister. Oh, wow. What was the uh, what was the vote of no confidence over? Do you remember? You know what? I don't remember. <laughs> that's that's OK. That was a curveball for you, Jeff. I would not expect you to remember, no, remember uh, what, what that vote of confidence was. was out and they gave it to the other party to put together a coalition. And um, the other party was able to. That was the Likud party. The interesting thing is, to the day he died, Shamir called it the big, uh, the big lie. Well, that, that Nessie, that doesn't surprise me at all. That that sounds like a a, a, a standard political response. Hey, listen, we've only yeah, got a couple of minutes. We've only got a couple of minutes left here, Jeff. But I want to ask you: Do you mind hanging around for uh, for another segment? Because I want to talk about uh, something else that you've got at Lidblog right now: uh, a country music television going all in on gun control, despite the fact that their audience. Not huge fans uh, of restricting the right to keep and bear arms. Can you stick around for another couple minutes with us? Sure. Okay, listen, we've got uh, we've got an end-of-the-hour break here. We are talking with my friend Jeff Dunnitz from uh, lidblog.com, uh, and we are going to continue the uh, 2A topics next hour as well. Stephen Gutowski of the website The Reload is going to be with us. We're going to talk about this new proposed rule from the Department of Justice and the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives that 
really is a backdoor gun ban, uh, and that's not overstating things. The the Obama, or excuse me, the uh, uh, Biden administration trying to do via executive action what it can't do via legislation in Congress, and that is to turn tens of millions of legally possessed firearms into prohibited items uh, with a stroke of a pen. So we're going to talk about that coming up next hour. But uh, when we return here on Tony Katz today, what on earth is country music television thinking embracing an anti-gun agenda when most of their audience are Second Amendment supporters? We'll take your phone calls as well. 833-GOT-TONY. That's the number to call. Stick around. More of Tony Katz today. It's coming up next. Welcome back to Tony Katz today. My name is Cam Edwards sitting in for Mr. Katz and glad to be here. We're going to be talking uh, 2A issues with Stephen Gatask of the Reload next hour. But actually, we're going to be talking, you know, I suppose in a way this is a Second Amendment issue, but it is also... I think really a, a culture war issue here. Uh, why on earth is country music television uh, encouraging its viewers to wear orange today uh, in support of National Gun Violence Awareness Day and uh, linking to the website Wear Orange, which is uh, brought to you by the uh, gun control group Moms Demand Action and Every Town for Gun Safety. Why, why are they doing this? Why would they tick off their audience? This is country music television, right? Or CMT. They I guess they don't play a lot of country music videos these days. But, you know, it's, it's the home of Last Man Standing, probably one of the most uh, conservative sit comms out there why are they ticking off their audience like this and they did tick off their audience uh, jeff dunnitz oh. from lidblog is with us on the program jeff what is your theory about why cmt oh. is uh, embracing uh the wear orange campaign and going all in on gun control well uh, i don't know if i ever told you this but i used to be the publisher of nickelodeon magazine no i did Nickel not know that yeah yeah nickelodeon was is owned by mtv networks so, mm -hmm. it's, so is CMT. And a lot of times promotional directives came from New York, not from the not from the network itself. My theory is it was the idiots in New York telling the people who run the, the network in Nashville what to do. Because it happened when I was there. Yeah. You know, that that very well could be uh, that this was coming from New York and not from uh, from Nashville. But I you know, I, I do remember after the uh, the Las Vegas shooting, um, the country music universe and, and many of its stars uh, did in some cases do an abrupt 180 degree pivot uh, on the Second Amendment. And they came out and they That's said, true. oh, no, we, we do need gun control. You know, it's, we've got to have these common sense gun safety laws. Uh, NRA uh, had its NRA country division and you had uh, groups like Florida Georgia Line uh, disassociate themselves from the National Rifle Association. So I think the country has gone woke to a certain degree. Uh, but but this, it sounds like it's this, aided and abetted by those New York executives. This effort in particular, it's in, remember, in remembrance of someone who was shot to death in Chicago mm -hmm. by a criminal. It's like 
it has nothing to do with gun control. It has to do with, because we all know that what people are trying to come up with is to take away guns from the good people so only the bad people have guns. Well, yeah, and this, that's, this that's exactly what that campaign is all about. So do you think there's going to... though, you know, to, to, to tie the two topics we've been talking about together... Mm-hmm. Last time I was in Israel was when they were about to pull out of Gaza, and anybody who protested that wore orange. So I don't know how they tied, but even last time I ever heard people <laughs> having to wear orange shirts. Huh? I, I I I didn't know that. Maybe there is some sort of connection there. Who 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 I knows? Have. But uh, I'm, I'm curious. I mean, so so what do you think? Is there going to be a a long term reaction uh, to this? Are viewers because it seems to me like you know back during the Obama administration when Michelle Obama said, look, you know everything's political. We're going to politicize everything. You you will be made to care about all of these issues. The first right. response at the time from conservatives was to roll their eyes and say, no, we're not. But I think, you know what? Yeah, we, we do now care about these issues, but we've got our backs up uh, on a lot of these issues. We still don't like being told what to think or what to say or what to do. So when a network like CMT comes out and says, hey, pay attention to gun control. Hey, if you're on the, the side of the angels, you're going to be uh, in favor of gun control. Does that network face a legit backlash? Are they in danger of losing viewers as a result of this activism? Well, Look at it this way: when um, when a San Francisco when a um, San Francisco 49er quarterback started kneeling at the national anthem, NFL ratings went in the tank. When the NBA started putting woke slogans on the basketball court, courts, their ratings went in the tank. So yeah, people don't like what they're saying. And by the reaction on Twitter and other social media, they don't, their ratings are going to go down. And that's going to hurt them financially. And you you know who will get them to stop it? Their sales staff. Because they won't make as much money. Uh, We can only hope that that is the case. Hey, Jeff, listen, my friend, it is always good talking to you. Tell folks uh, about libblog.com and what they they can find when they go there. Um, Actually, I I, I actually last night put up some, you know, the L.A. Times thinks that it knows the Heller decision better than the Supreme Court. (laughs) And, 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 you know, I write about all political issues and culture issues and faith issues. It's just that there are... You know, I happen to believe that that one of them, it's the Second Amendment, because after freedom of religion and freedom of speech, that's the second most important thing. Absolutely. And we're going to protect that. Absolutely right. Yeah, I, I write about the Constitution, too, because it's important. Yeah, yeah, yes, it is, despite the uh, fact that, you know, roughly half the country would like to uh, ignore it. It is critically important. Again, you can find uh, Jeff. I grew up knowing that nobody can tell me what to do except my wife. But. (laughs) 
Well, you know what? You keep up the fight, Jeff. It is always good talking with you, man. I really appreciate you coming on the show Same today. And uh, make sure you visit Jeff again at lidblog.com or you can uh, find him on the uh, the Twitter machine as well. Uh, Yid with Lid at uh, Twitter. Jeff Dunn is joining us here on Tony Katz today. I'm, I've been looking for the ratings, by the way, for uh, the CMT Awards. I, I can't find any. So I, I, I have not been able to find the overnight ratings for uh, CMT, but uh, the Academy of Country Music Awards, those were held uh, back in April, and they did hit an all-time low. They drew a, a 0.8 rating and 6 million viewers on CBS. So you would expect that CMT, being a, a cable network, going to have uh, a lower ratings than a, a network like CBS to begin with. But the fact that CMT hasn't issued a press release bragging about the ratings last night for the CMT awards leads me to believe that um, a lot of folks who are country music fans may have had something better to do. Maybe they had to wash their hair or polish their boots or, or, or something other than uh, tune into the network that is uh, lecturing them on why they should be supporting gun control. All right, when we come back here on uh, Tony Cast today, we've got some other issues to talk about, including what's going on at the ACLU, which in its day, uh, you know, has defended some pretty awful people, right? They've defended the, the, the First Amendment rights of the KKK. They have defended the First Amendment rights of Nazis. They've never really been on board with the Second Amendment. I, I will say that about the ACLU. They've always viewed the Second Amendment as uh, a collective right, even after the Heller decision in 2008, and the Supreme Court uh, said, no, it's actually an individual right. The ACLU has never embraced the Second Amendment, but they've always been good about defending the First Amendment rights of people that, even people that they disagree with. But those days may be coming to an end here because there are a lot of members of the ACLU, higher-ups at the ACLU, who believe that it is more important to stand with progressives and to identify with progressive causes than to stand for the Second Amendment. Um, David Goldberger, 79 years of age, a longtime civil liberties advocate. He had actually argued the uh, ACLU case defending the free speech rights of Nazis in the 1970s to march in Skokie, Illinois, which was uh, home to many Holocaust survivors. David Goldberger argues that the ACLU has lost its way he, he, he said, uh, quote, um, liberals are leaving the First Amendment behind, and that would include the ACLU. So we're going to talk about this after a, a quick timeout. Stick around. We've got more of Tony Katz today coming up next.
Welcome back. It is Tony Katz today. My name is Cam Edwards. 833-GOT-TONY. That's the number to call. Coming up on the uh, program next hour, Stephen Gatowski of The Reload joins us. We're going to be talking uh, all things Second Amendment. I'm actually looking over a, uh, a new poll out of the state of Virginia right now. Virginia, one of just two states in the nation that's going to have statewide elections coming up later this year. And, you know, a lot of folks, uh, uh, the, the conventional political wisdom is that this is sort of a bellwether, right, for uh, what's going on. On, uh, around the country, well, maybe a preview of the midterm elections. Virginia has been a state that has been trending blue. Uh, over the past 10 years, much to my chagrin as a resident of the state of Virginia. But a, uh, this new poll out from WPA Intelligence shows a very close race right now between Democrat Terry McAuliffe and Republican uh, Glenn Youngkin. 48% McAuliffe, 46% Yunkin, 5% undecided. This is a uh, poll of 506 likely voters in the state of Virginia. Now, look, I, I, I always encourage people uh, take polls with all kinds of uh, grains of salt, right? When one poll is not a perfect snapshot of the current state of the election, I do want to see some other polling in the state of Virginia to see if this is an outlier or if this is, uh, uh, you know, really what uh what reflects the the reality on the ground in the state of virginia but this is fascinating to me uh glenn youngkin the republican leads by a point among uh unaffiliated voters those who don't identify as a republican or a democrat uh glenn youngkin leads in every major media market except for the dc suburbs of northern virginia which is no surprise uh that has become a a reliably uh, Democratic stronghold in the state of Virginia. But for all of the folks who are saying that, you know, uh, Republicans are, are going to be at a disadvantage in 2022, that uh, that, that Trump is going to be a drag on the Republican Party, uh, that uh, Republicans need to get past being the party of Trump. You would expect that if that argument were accurate, it would be reflected in this poll in Virginia, a state that Donald Trump lost twice, both in 2016 uh, and in 2020. Glenn Youngkin uh, not the Trumpiest of Republican candidates in the state of Virginia, but he certainly was not a never Trumper. Uh, the uh, former CEO of the Carlisle Group in uh, Northern Virginia, uh, he was, you know, I, I think he's a, a semi-establishment candidate. I say semi-establishment because he's never run for political office before. So he's a political newcomer. Uh, he's not a guy who has spent a career in politics, but he is a guy who has worked with and you know surrounded himself uh, with sort of establishment Republican figures. The Carlisle Group had close ties to George H.W. Bush, to, uh, to Jim Baker, uh, and, and that's where Glenn Youngkin comes from. Um, but he has solidified and, and largely unified a very fractured Republican Party in the state of Virginia. We had basically four uh, big candidates in the state, Glenn Youngkin, uh, Pete Snyder, another businessman who uh, had never run for office before. Uh, then you had, I think, the establishment favorite, uh, former House Speaker Kirk Cox. And then you had Senator Amanda Chase, who described herself as Trump in heels, uh, very much courted the, uh, the, the, the MAGA wing of the Republican Party. Uh, and both the establishment candidate, Kirk Cox and Amanda Chase, 
uh, finished below these two business leaders who are running for government or running for governor. And uh, Glenn Youngkin ultimately getting the nomination. According to this poll, Youngkin leads in the Richmond, Virginia area, 48 to 44 percent over Terry McAuliffe. That's surprising. Uh, in the uh, Roanoke Lynchburg area, which is a little bit more rural out in uh, Western Virginia, Youngkin leads uh, McAuliffe right now by 3.4946. Uh, in Northern Virginia, the, the Washington, D.C. demographic, uh, McAuliffe leads Youngkin 56 to 39 percent. And so that's the thing that doesn't sound like an unreasonable number to me. That, that's about what I would expect a Democrat to be in, in Northern Virginia. Uh, but the fact that McAuliffe is trailing in the rest of the state, and again, this uh, race is within the margin of error. Now, granted, look, it's June. It's not November. There are a lot of Virginia residents who are not paying much attention uh, to what's going on in this political race and won't until after, say, Labor Day or so. You know, again, one poll can't tell you everything you need to know. But those folks who were predicting that uh, this was going to be a, a Democrat blowout year in Virginia, I think that they're wrong. And I think that uh, that's reflected not only in what we saw in November of 2020 in terms of the congressional elections around uh, the nation uh, and the state of Virginia, but you just look at the damage that Democrats are doing to themselves. I can tell you in Virginia right now, one of the big issues is critical race theory. Uh, and in Loudoun County, which is a, a Washington, D.C. exurb, school district there has about 88,000 students. And students, parents, and teachers alike are teeing off on this district's policy to bring critical race theory into the schools. There was a school board meeting uh, held earlier this week, the first one in months where the public was actually allowed to attend. And you had over 100 people show up to express their opposition to the indoctrination of students there in Loudoun County. Now, Loudoun County is a reliably blue county in Northern Virginia. And yet uh, the, the turnout for this school board meeting and the opposition that we're starting to see to some of these programs, I think Democrats are really overreaching in the state of Virginia and around the country in terms of their policies, in terms of who's in charge. We talked about this with Ed Morrissey last hour. Uh, the idea that, uh, uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi needs to step in and uh, put a stop to, uh, to what the squad is doing. Look, I think the squad is largely in charge of setting policy uh, among Democrats right now. And that is not to the advantage of Democrats who are running, uh, even in uh, states that have been trending blue, like the state of Virginia. Their policies are, are, are so abhorrent uh, to so many voters that it's going to do a lot of damage, even for an establishment Democrat like Terry McAuliffe. All right, that music means... We've got to step away for just a moment or two. When we come back, however, we're going to turn our attention to uh, what's going on in the world of the Second Amendment. We are going to get to that uh, piece about the ACLU and how they might be giving up on defending the First Amendment in the name of woke politics. It's hard to get away from the woke politics. Stick around. Hour three of Tony Cast today It's coming up right after this. Live from the heartland, 
and the crossroads of America. It's Tony Katz today. It's Tony Katz today. My name is Cam Edwards, uh, editor at BearingArms.com. In for Mr. Katz. I'll be here tomorrow as well. And uh, over the next hour or so, we're going to be delving into some Second Amendment issues, including one that is hugely important for gun owners all across the country. This new proposed rule from the Department of Justice and the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives that seeks to redefine what a rifle is. Now, they want to do this in order to uh, create a whole new class of criminals out of legal gun owners in this country. There are somewhere between 4 million and 40 million uh, AR-style pistols that are legally owned, lawfully possessed in the United States. And the Biden administration is taking steps with this new proposed rule to turn every one who owns a legal uh, who, who legally owns one of these uh, pistols into a federal felon by redefining these firearms as short-barreled rifles which must be registered with the federal government under the National Firearms Act. If you don't do that, if you don't pay a $200 tax stamp to Uncle Sam to register your uh, your your lawfully purchased and possessed firearm, you could be looking at 10 years in a federal prison or a $100,000 fine. Now, the ATF's proposed rule that seeks to redefine these AR-style pistols as short-barreled rifles, it's not like they've got a hard and fast definition. That's, that's part of the problem. It's a 71-page rule that you're supposed to wade through, but even if you do wade through all 71 pages, you still won't know for sure whether the gun that you possess and purchase legally is now considered or would be considered by the Biden administration as a short-barreled rifle, an item that must be registered under the National Firearms Act. 71 pages, and they still can't provide a clear, concise definition. Instead, they've put out this worksheet that you're supposed to go through and fill out and certain characteristics, uh, you know, are, there are points applied. And if you reach a certain number of points, then all of a sudden the ATF says, yeah, that's probably going to be a short-barreled rifle. But on this worksheet itself, the ATF says in very fine print, I might add, that even if you go through this worksheet and it looks to you like your gun is fine, it's not a short-barreled rifle, the ATF reserves the right to decide otherwise. So there's no way for American gun owners to know whether or not they're going to be in compliance with this rule until it's too late. Until the ATF goes to their door sees their uh, AR-style pistol, and then they will make the determination as to whether or not you have violated the law. Seems a little backwards, doesn't it? Now, the public comment period on this uh, proposed rule just opened today. So we do have time as Second Amendment supporters to, uh, to make our thoughts known uh, and to uh, file our public comment with the federal government. Now, whether or not the Biden administration listens well, that's another story entirely. Uh, I have uh, spoken with several folks within the uh, Second Amendment community and the firearms industry who say that they are already prepping for a lawsuit uh, if this proposed rule is finalized and uh, uh, becomes an official regulation from the ATF. But we do need to speak out now while we still can uh, about this rule that, again, has the potential to turn millions 
of law-abiding legal gun owners into criminals with the stroke of a pen. So we're going to be talking about that with Stephen Gutowski. Also, the uh, recent decision out of California, Judge Roger Benitez striking down the state's ban on so-called assault weapons. The left continues to lose its mind over this. It's been almost a week. It was last Friday when Judge Benitez's decision came out, and the left still can't stop talking about it. The uh, L.A. Times editorial page uh, bashing the judge for the decision. The Washington Post has really gone all in on this, 3,000 miles away from uh, where this decision was issued and the Washington Post editorial board, their columnists. I mean, I've seen almost half a dozen columns and editorials about this decision over the past week because they, they, they are so freaked out about what this decision might mean for the gun control agenda. If again, the Supreme Court's already said you can't ban handguns in this country. Well, if you can't ban handguns, you can't ban modern sporting rifles. What can you ban? And that's what the gun control movement is all about. Banning stuff, restricting stuff, infringing on the right to keep your arms or, or restricting the right to keep your arms to such a small, tiny space that maybe, maybe if you get a permission slip from the government, you could keep a, a single shot Derringer in your home or maybe a single barrel shotgun. If, again, they give you permission to do so. And now we're seeing court cases come out of, you know, some pretty surprising places like Southern California that recognize. Now, we're actually talking about a real right here. It's a fundamental right. And you can't just declare that, well, it's going to make people safer to ban these guns. No, that's that's not enough of a reason to infringe on someone's constitutional rights, particularly, by the way, when that's a false statement, as Judge Roger Benitez pointed out. Uh, in his opinion, he noted that uh, in the state of California, and this is true, by the way, for every other state of the union, about twice as many people are murdered every year by somebody wielding a knife than by somebody wielding a rifle. And so if, quote unquote, assault weapons are so uh, unusually dangerous that they must be banned. Well, why aren't knife control advocates making that same case about the butcher knife that uh, you might have in your kitchen drawer the fact remains that we are talking about the most commonly sold rifle in america today there are more than 20 million legally owned ar-15s around the country even in the state of california which has banned quote-unquote assault weapons there were more than 100,000 semi-automatic rifles that were sold last year now, they're, they're, they're what's called featureless rifles, because in California, the definition of an assault weapon is a semi-automatic rifle uh, that can accept a detachable magazine and has a certain number of features. So you get rid of those features, like a bayonet lug or a uh, flash suppressor, things of uh, that nature, a, a folding stock or an adjustable stock, and then that gun becomes legal. And in California, what's happened since 1989, since their first quote-unquote assault weapons ban got put in place, is they've gone back and they've redefined what an assault weapon is over the years. I think four different times they've changed the definition. And they've expanded that definition in an attempt to try to ban more and more firearms. But Californians, they, they, they keep finding a way to go out and purchase these rifles. Why? Because... These are the most popular. They are older. Uh, they are more. 
they are modified. Uh, my wife and I, the we have at our house, it's ambidextrous. It has uh, a uh, uh, forward charging so that I'd be a left-handed all right, so it looks like we are having some technical issues right now. Cam, uh, I know it's thunderstorming down there in Virginia where he's at. Uh, I'm going to take the break right now. I'm going to try to reconnect with Cam when we get back. Uh, we will uh, we'll try to reconnect. I'm optimistic because I'm a producing wizard. Uh, so let's stand by. We're going to have a great guest when we come back. I will fix the connection issue. This is Tony Katz today. Stand by. All right, welcome back to Tony Cast today. Uh, apologies for the uh, technical difficulties there, but I believe we are back five by five. Uh, yeah, sitting here in the middle of a uh, big thunderstorm uh, in uh, Farmville, Virginia. Beautiful bucolic Farmville, Virginia. Uh, but I, uh, I believe that that might have uh, impeded my ability to speak with you for a couple of seconds. But we are back, and we do have our friend uh, Stephen Gatowski from The Reload uh, with us on the program. Stephen, how are you, sir? Hey, Ken, I'm doing well. I appreciate you coming on the program. We were talking about uh, Judge Roger Benitez's decision last week about the uh, assault weapons ban in California being unconstitutional when uh, when when Mother Nature so rudely uh, cut me off. And I, I do want to talk with you about that decision because the uh, the left is losing their mind over what uh, Judge Benitez had to say. But before we get into that, let's talk about this new proposed rule from uh, the DOJ and the ATF. Public comments just went live today. Uh, and as you write at the reload, this proposed rule has the potential to turn millions of Americans into felons overnight without them having to do a single thing, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, If this rule were to be adopted, it would effectively outlaw uh, the possession of really almost every pistol brace currently on the market um, and would require that people who already own them um, you know, people who bought them legally up to this point, um, to, you know, they'd have to register those guns that they've attached braces to with, with the ATF and pay a $200 tax stamp or else they would be, um, you know, under risk of being prosecuted for a federal felony. You know, and, and again, I mean, this federal felony, we're talking about a 10-year prison sentence, a $100,000 fine, potentially, for individuals who, who who legally and lawfully purchased uh, these firearms, and in fact, were told at the time that they purchased these firearms that these were pistols, and now the ATF just wants to go back and retroactively declare that actually, no, 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 these millions of uh, guns—they're actually probably rifles. That's the other uh, really disturbing part about this proposed rule, Stephen, is that 71 pages long. They've got this worksheet uh, for you to try to figure out if your uh, AR-style pistol is actually a short-barreled rifle, but they can't tell you for sure. Ultimately, they say it's up to us to figure out whether or not uh, your gun is legal to own or not. Yeah, I think that that is the bottom line. Certainly, they've provided like a point system and a worksheet so that people can try to judge for themselves. Um, But of course, even within that, uh, you know, they do have some objective standards like weight or length, but some of them are, are still pretty subjective, like whether or not, you know, the the uh, strap 
the brace goes all the way around someone's forearm. Well, obviously, people have different sized forearms. And so uh, the big problem, too, is like if you're off by one point, that's the difference between a perfectly legal gun and uh, a federal felony again. So, you know, it's still like it's a more objective system than what they tried to put out last fall, but it still has very significant problems that are going to wind up, unfortunately, if it goes through, making a lot of people into felons. Yeah. And, and, you know, as I mentioned a couple of minutes ago, there is on this worksheet in fine print uh, at the top of this worksheet, uh, a little disclaimer from the ATF saying that, you know, even if you're uh, even if you add up all these points and you think you're good to go, uh, we reserve the right to declare your pistol a rifle anyway. I'm paraphrasing here, but but that is, you know, they they, they do want to ultimately uh, leave that authority up to themselves. So even if you think that you're good to go, the ATF says, well, we reserve the right to tell you you're wrong. Um, the public comment period just opened uh, for uh, for this proposed rule, Stephen, and we've already seen about a month ago a, another proposed rule uh, seeking to redefine what a frame and a receiver is and even terms like uh, readily convertible. Uh, that has received more than 40,000 uh, public comments to date, which is a, a pretty good number. Uh, do you anticipate, uh, is the Second Amendment community, are, are they on guard? Are they aware? Are they going to respond to this proposed rule? Are they going to flood the uh, ATF and DOJ with comments, you think? Or are they going to, you know, sit on the sidelines on this? No, I mean, I would expect that this rule gets, uh, you know, a massive amount of comments, especially compared to, you know, most things that end up in the Federal Register don't don't get many comments at all. But, um, you know, certainly, and I think that the, the brace rule is probably going to get um, even more comments than the, the frame or, or receiver rule change, mm -hmm. uh, just because it affects so many people there's you know that there's wild variations in the estimates for how many are out there the atf's low number is three million uh the congressional research service puts it between 10 and 40 million um but either way that's millions of people who are going to be affected by this uh and so i would expect to see quite a lot of pushback from and, and organized pushback from the gun control or sorry from the gun rights <laughs> movement I, I think you'll see quite a lot of uh effort to get a lot of comments and because it could effectively stop this um we've seen it happen before with uh you know the the green tip uh ban proposal under president obama and then the last time the atf tried to uh do a guidance letter uh in the fall on braces you know, the same result there where pushback ended up making them withdraw it. That's true. Um, although, again, that, you know, that, that wasn't the Trump administration. We'll see what uh, what the Biden administration wants to do. I, I, I personally have a hard time believing that uh, Biden is going to back away uh, from either of these proposed rules, given the fact that his gun control plans right now have no chance of getting through Congress uh, as long as the filibuster remains in place. Uh, mm -hmm. And the ATF really is, you know, the the one vehicle that Biden has 
um, to advance his gun control agenda. So that that to me means that uh, he's going to be very reluctant, even if there is overwhelming opposition to these rules, uh, very reluctant to uh, to pull these rules. Uh, and of course, the other aspect of this is the ATF's uh, uh, director. Biden has nominated gun control activist uh, and former ATF agent David Chipman to, to run this agency. Uh, and I think this is sort of a taste of things to come if, if David Chipman is confirmed here. I have no doubt in my mind that gun control groups uh, were a part of the discussions with the DOJ and the ATF on, on what these proposed rules should look like. But if you've got a gun control activist in charge of this agency, um, I think it's going to get a heck of a lot worse than what we've seen already. Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably a fair assessment um, in terms of how someone like David Shipman would run the ATF. You know, you're putting a uh, an activist, the gun control activist, in charge of a regulatory agency. Um, and, you know, it's it would be similar to putting, you know, Wayne LaPierre in charge of, of the ATF, um, uh, you know, in that... Uh, He's a, he's, this is a guy who's worked for over a decade now for multiple gun control groups um, and has made his positions extremely clear in public about what he wants to see done. Now, he obviously, he says that if he's confirmed, he would just enforce the law. But obviously, regulatory agencies have quite a lot of latitude when it comes to how they enforce the law. Exactly. So you would expect that with Chipman in charge that he would probably enforce it in the most uh, the strictest way he possibly could. Uh, I think that's a fair thing to assume. I do, too. And I, I thought that was actually one of the uh, the more weaselly things that uh, David Chipman said during his uh, confirmation hearing in the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, not long ago that oh, I would just enforce the other laws on the books, uh, ignoring the fact that, as you say, he's going to be able to influence what the regulations look like. Uh, be, mm-hmm. be, and because Congress has you know largely abdicated a lot of their responsibilities uh, to these federal agencies and have allowed these agencies sweeping rulemaking powers, you know, Chipman can say, well, I'm just following what Congress has told me to do. And he still has a lot of leeway uh, to enact his own policies that would be uh, enforceable against uh, the firearms industry and the country's uh, 100 million uh, plus gun owners. Hey, Stephen, listen, we've got to take a break here at the bottom of the hour. Can I ask you to stick around for just a couple more minutes? Oh, certainly. Fantastic. All right. My friend, Stephen Gatowski of The Reload is with us here on Tony Katz today. Uh, when we come back, I do want to talk about the, uh, the the decision in California striking down that state's ban on so-called assault weapons uh, and what this means for gun owners all around the country. Stick around. We have much more of Tony Katz today. My name is Cam Edwards, editor at Bearing Arms, and we'll be back with more right after this.
It is Tony Katz today. My name is Cam Edwards, sitting in for Mr. Katz. I am the editor at BearingArms.com, where we cover all things Second Amendment. And we are, uh, oh, taking this last hour of a Tony Katz today to talk about some 2A issues. Our friend Stephen Gatowski of The Reload is with us. We've been talking about that uh, new proposed rule from DOJ and ATF. But one of the other uh, big topics right now uh, is this ruling out of California where Judge Roger Benitez last Friday declared that the state's ban on so-called called assault weapons is unconstitutional uh, and and since then there has been almost a uh, an unending stream of a uh, commentary uh, blasting the judge for comparing the AR15 to a Swiss army knife it's it's funny Stephen there's been a lot of criticism of judge Benitez's decision but it really hasn't been, from what I've seen anyway, it's not really been substantive criticism. They, they, again, they've complained about, you know, some statements that uh, Benitez made uh, in his opinion, but they really haven't been able to take a lot of issue with his actual arguments as to why uh, the ban on AR-15s and other semi-automatic rifles violates the constitutional rights of California residents. Yeah, I think there's been... Obviously, the, the criticism been mainly focused on the uh, the stylistic choices and the, and the opinion and some of the metaphors used by Judge Benitez. Obviously, the Swiss Army knife thing has been a, ma- a major talking point. Um, so somewhat I- ironically, in my opinion, because the talking point from Governor Newsom and Bernie Sanders, Senator Bernie Sanders, was that uh, you know how could you compare a, a weapon of war like the AR-15, which one is ever been used in war that certainly the m16 or m4 which are different rifles i know they look similar but uh they've been used in war the ar-15 is not and then the, the swiss army knife is literally named for the <laughs> fact that it was developed by the swiss army um but uh aside from that you know yeah i have seen some uh you know academics who've made more substantive critiques like Jake Charles um, from Duke University um, that, you know, mainly focus on the uh, judge's uh, analysis of, of the two-part test that, that the Ninth Circuit has, has put in place. But, you know, certainly for the most part, it ha- the, the opposition, especially the very angry opposition to what the judge ruled, has been almost entirely focused on yeah, stylistic choices. Yeah, well, and I, I think it's because, uh, you know, politicians like Gavin Newsom, uh, and we'll get into the academics like Jake Charles from Duke, but I, I think, you know, politicians like Gavin Newsom and Bernie Sanders, I, 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 you know, I think it's fair to say they probably don't have a uh, an in-depth grasp uh, of these issues. They know they want to ban these yeah. guns, and they're they're mad that a judge won't let them. Um, but, you know, Judge Benitez, basically, you know, he, he, what, I, what I really liked about Judge Benitez's decision is 94 pages long, and it's, it's very readable, um, you know, so don't. Don't be mm-hmm. dissuaded because you think it's a dry legal opinion. He, he basically has two arguments as to why this uh, ban is unconstitutional. The, the simple reason, he says, is because these are guns that are in common use by law-abiding Americans for a variety of lawful mm-hmm. purposes. And, and under what he calls the Heller test, he says right. that, 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 that alone means that these uh, uh, items and these arms are protected by the Second Amendment. Um, that's sort of the short 
version. But then he actually responds to every one of the arguments that the state of California made as to why they should be able to ban these guns, right? Calling them a weapon of war. And as, as you pointed out, and as Judge Benitez points out, no, these are not military firearms. The military doesn't use these firearms. State of California said, mm -hmm. well, these are uh, uh, uniquely dangerous items. They're disproportionately used in crime. And Judge Benitez actually said, no, actually, they're, 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 they're not uh, disproportionately used in crime. They're actually used in very few crimes. Uh, more people were killed by knives in the state of California in 2018 uh, than were killed by a rifle of any kind. And so point by point, he refutes the argument that the uh, attorney general in California uh, uh, made trying to defend this ban. And each and every time uh, he explains quite clearly why California's case just doesn't stand up. Yeah, sure. And obviously, you know, probably to uh, the listeners here, you know, a lot of these arguments are not new, of course. Uh, they've been mm -hmm. around for quite a while. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think the judge does a very good job of laying them out in a way that's very easy to read for, you know, the average person. Um and maybe doesn't make academics quite as, as happy, but, but certainly is more accessible um, and, and give, goes through and gives the, the evidence, you know, for why, uh, you know, why, why things like gun rights activists don't believe things like Sullivan's bans actually work or have any good basis in, in the Constitution or even in the statistics of, uh, you know, violent crime. Yeah, this was uh, something else that uh, that Judge Benitez uh, uh, pointed out in his uh, opinion here, that um, when the state of California, uh, you know, proclaimed that, uh, that these firearms um, are uniquely dangerous weapons, uh, mm -hmm. Judge Benitez points out, you know, OK, well, the, I think it was I think it was 2018 was the year that he talked about. Uh, he said there were 24 people in California who were murdered in, in mass shootings uh, in which, mm -hmm. you know, one of these uh, rifles was used. But he also then turns around and says, OK, but what about all of the individuals who may have wanted one of these firearms for self-defense uh, to prevent a rape, to prevent a home invasion. And if you're going mm -hmm. to, you know, uh, tally up the number of people who were killed with one of these rifles, you also have to pay some attention uh, uh, to those folks who were legal law-abiding residents of California who were prevented from owning one of these firearms who could have used these firearms to act in self-defense because Judge Benitez actually documents and, and provides several uh, armed citizen stories, several defensive gun uses in which AR-15s and, and other banned quote-unquote assault weapons were used to defend human life. Right, right, because obviously that that's something that happens fairly frequently in the United States, uh, especially right. given that rifles, uh, or given that the AR-15, which is one of the rifles banned under California's assault weapons ban, um, or at least you know what most people would think of as an AR-15, um, you know they they're used in self-defense. Uh, they're the most popular rifle in the country. Uh, people generally buy them for home defense or sporting purposes and so it's not it shouldn't be surprising all the, uh, that they're used in in self-defense uh fairly frequently even though it doesn't get nearly as much attention of course as uh you know when they're used for nefarious purposes 
Um, yeah, well, I would so argue that defensive gun uses some people, but it's clearly true. Yeah, and defensive gun uses in general don't get the media attention uh, that uh, use of firearms and crimes receive. Um, listen, in the last couple of minutes we have left here, I want to ask you this. The the decision has been stayed uh, by Judge Benitez for 30 days, giving the state of California time to appeal. I think it's very likely the Ninth Circuit is going to keep that stay in place. So I don't think anything changes right away for Californians. But right. I, I, you know, in this case really is early on, right? This case now goes up to the Ninth Circuit uh, Court of Appeals. It could go on bonk uh, in the Ninth Circuit before this case reaches the Supreme Court. But this fall, SCOTUS is going to hear a challenge to New York's uh, uh, carry laws. And that decision could come out eh, probably about a year from now. Um, that decision, while not directly dealing with, quote unquote, assault weapons, still has the potential to uh, to to define how the Ninth Circuit is going to handle this case going forward, right? This is one of the things oh, that yeah. Second Amendment activists are hoping for, that the court will weigh in on the standard of review that lower courts need to use and and provide some, some real guidance and some, frankly, some limitations uh, on lower courts upholding virtually every gun control law that comes before them. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's one of the big ways that the Supreme Court case could have an effect if they directly say, "Here's how you have to decide Second Amendment cases." Uh, you know, here's a standard you have to use because they didn't they didn't really do that in Heller, other than mm -hmm. rejecting balancing tests, which lower courts have kind of just ignored anyway. Right. Um, and so, obviously, that's a big, a big part of what gun, gun rights activists want out of this New York case. But I, but I also think it could have an effect, even if they don't do that, even if they just rule specifically on, uh, you know, the, the gun carry issue at, at play, it, that will still have a major impact on how this case moves forward. Because this case is in uh, a real sweet spot, timing-wise, uh, where, yeah, it's not going to go into effect, this ruling. Uh, you know, unfortunately for people who want to buy AR-15s in, in California, uh, you know, that's not likely to happen anytime soon. But uh, if, if the Ninth Circuit were to uphold this case, like I think a lot of people would expect them to, given the makeup of that court, um, it certainly would be an obvious choice for uh, appeal to the Supreme Court. And if the Supreme Court has taken, uh, you know, they just took this major gun question, this major gun mm -hmm. case, and if they decide it in a way that's favorable to gun rights activists, uh, the, the basically they strike down the New York's restrictive gun carry legislation or their law, that could absolutely have a major effect on how the Ninth Circuit handles this case and how the California Attorney General handles the case. You could see what's called minimization take place, which is a legal strategy that you saw with uh, D.C.'s gun carry ban. When that got struck down, the Attorney General in D.C. didn't appeal to the Supreme Court because yep. he was afraid that they would rule against him and set a larger precedent. You could see a very similar kind of strategy take place with this assault weapons ban litigation in California, where either the attorney general or the the uh, members of the Ninth Circuit who would otherwise uphold California's law altogether, they mm -hmm. might take a different tact and do a more, uh, you know, get, basically give a, a much more limited win to the plaintiffs to prevent them from, uh, going further up the chain to the Supreme Court. 
Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how this strategy plays out. Uh, and again, Stephen Gataski, I want folks to check out thereload.com. This is a Stephen's website. I know it's technically we're competitors, I suppose, at Bearing Arms and the Reload. But uh, I, I think, honestly, I, I view us as collaborators in defense of the Second Amendment. Uh, and Stephen, it is always a pleasure having you on the show, sir, getting a chance to talk with you. So thank you so much for your time today. Yes, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Stephen Gatowski, again, founder of the Reload.com. Go check out the uh, website. We're going to take a quick time out here on Tony Katz today, but we'll be back with more news and information coming up right after this.